Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. I'm here today with our special guest, Tyler Cowan. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Tyler, we're here to discuss stubborn attachments, uh, among other things. I, I first want to briefly summarize what I, I see to be the take-home point of the book and then see how you'd respond to that. So you make the case for why there should be a moral imperative for us to pursue sustainable economic growth with the caveat that it's adjusted for environmental sustainability and leisure time and uh, you know that we also treat human rights as a stubborn attachment as well. And you make an analogy between sustainable economic growth as a Crisonia plant, which is sort of an analogy for compounding growth, the sort of gift that keeps on giving. And you make this case because you say wealthier societies have over time better living standards, better health, greater autonomy, fulfillment, happiness. And you could just compare Cuba versus Singapore to see an example. One of the ways in which you're able to describe this as morally imperative is because we should, you say that we should value human lives in the future just as much as we do now. And in the future, economic growth makes everybody better off. How would you add or edit to this being the take-home point of stubborn attachments? You can read the book as a response to the effect of altruism movement, saying it should be more focused on economic growth. You can read it as a response to moral philosophers who tend to talk more about inequality or social justice or even libertarian rights. Uh, you can view it as simply an attempt to convince ourselves that what we believe really can be justified in some foundationalist sense. Those are other ways you can read the book. And so let, let's take a couple of those, either effective altruism or, or libertarian rights. What fundamental assumptions do they have that are different from yours? The effective altruism movement very often focuses on redistribution. So how can we take money from one group of people and give it to another to make the recipients better off? And there's a good deal of value in that. But most of the ways we have of making other people better off are from win-win situations and from economic growth and from having better institutions. So uh, I'm suggesting effective altruism reorient itself toward these ideas of institutions and economic growth. And you say that redistribution is a, is a one-off effect where uh, economic growth sort of compounds and that people don't fully appreciate you know, how powerful compounding growth is. Uh, what type of redistribution does sort of lead to compounding growth? And what sort of economic growth does not compound or is not sustainable rather? Well, I think a lot of redistribution very much does support economic growth. The simplest example would be to give a child with malnutrition a food to eat. That child will grow up healthier and probably better educated and will have a higher IQ later in life and will be much more productive. So that's a simple example of how redistribution and economic growth can work together. But I'm making the radical suggestion that we should only entertain those redistributions which boost economic growth. And that's very much outside the sphere of usual discourse. Now, there are also forms of economic growth which are not sustainable. One example would be if you simply had growth and paid no heed to the environment whatsoever, did nothing to improve air pollution, problems of carbon emissions. Uh, to some extent, we're on that track right now, and we ought to get off it. What's your framework for assessing whether redistribution leads to long-term economic growth? Well, there's a significant social science literature on that. So there are plenty of studies where if you redistribute in the correct way, 
to very poor individuals in their early years of life, you can make them much more productive. So that knowledge I would view as broadly confirmed. But most of the redistribution we do in modern America today, a lot of it is toward the wealthy or it's simply toward the elderly because they are elderly. I'm not saying those redistributions have no useful purposes, but they ought to face a much higher bar before we're ready to approve of them at such a high level as what we do. I see this part of this book is also responding to the Peter Singer question of how could you enjoy ice cream when someone in Africa or another country is, is starving or the continent is starving. And I sort of see you making an intellectual chess move, which sort of changes the dimension of the game, which is including future people or people in the future just as much as we, you know, value ourselves. And is the response there that the more, you know, you should enjoy the ice cream because you're participating in economic growth, which thus helps future poor people in Africa? Or, or how, how do you, how does that respond to Peter Singer. I'm saying that even within a framework of effective altruism or Peter Singer's framework, it's fine to be selfish as long as your selfish activities are in accord with you being productive. Now, out there in Silicon Valley, that is usually the case. There are countries where selfishness often takes the form of rent-seeking behavior, grabbing resources from others. But if what it means for you to be selfish is to work hard, produce a lot, and then at the end of the day, enjoy your ice cream, I'm saying more power to it. That's a more effective way of helping other people than, say, Peter Singer's redistribution. And, and how would he argue, if he was on the line right now, how, how would he argue against it? Like, what is the fundamental crux of disagreement you two have? Well, I had an hour-long blogging heads dialogue with Peter Singer. I, I suppose viewers could watch that, but I don't think he had a good response. And it was partly my interaction with Singer that convinced me to accelerate my work on stubborn attachments. Right. You also mentioned that Thinking about economic growth as it relates to Crisonia plant for, for people in the future also allows us to get over aggregation dispute, disputes about, you know, whose preferences do we value because sustainable economic growth improves everyone in, in the long run. But what do you say to people who suffer in the short run? Uh, who are the short-term losers in economic growth and, and what do we say to them? Well, most economic growth, there will be short-term losers. So if you have automation or if you have freer trade, uh, some workers will see their wages are undercut either by the machine or by foreign laborers. In, in terms of what I say to them, I'm not sure I can convince them to support the change. But I think the important question is this. When are there ever cases where some people gain and others lose, where we can ever make the comparison that it is objectively best to pursue the greater sum of gains? And I argue in the book that when those gains are sustained over long periods of time, and many, many millions of people will be better off for decades or centuries, that that is the one case where we can say, well, the gains really do outweigh the losses. That would be the way I would frame an answer to your question. How do you rebut the, the Keynes old assertion that in the long run, we are all dead? What's, what's your counter to that? Well, Keynes is dead right now, but you and I are not. So people who are distant temporarily in the future, when their pleasures and suffering arrive, those pleasures and suffering will be no less real. So I'm suggesting we adopt a kind of temporal neutrality. If, 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 if the whole world were run on Keynes' basis, it would never have gotten very far. Your shining example in the book is the is East Asian miracles. What can we learn you know, from a policy perspective, from an economic perspective, from a cultural perspective, from, from the East Asian miracles, and, and how can we apply it here? Well, I think the most important thing we can learn from some of the East Asian countries is simply that it's possible to have a government committed to maximizing economic growth. You don't have to think that, well, what they did, we should copy exactly. That's likely not the case. 
But some people say, oh, this is fruitless. Governments never do the right thing. You know, you're just shouting in the wind. But we have several cases, Japan, South Korea, arguably China, Singapore, Taiwan, where governments really have followed this path pretty exactly and made it work. Now, I would say there are also some particular lessons from those cases. Human capital is very, very important, I think. And having clusters of productive activity working together, again, as we see also in Silicon Valley, that's very important. So we can also take away some particular lessons. Researching for this interview, I, I tried to find some criticisms of, of the book. Now, gr- granted, it's a, it's a new book, but I, I couldn't find any, which was surprising to me because the ideas I, I feel like are, are unpopular to, to, to some people. Could you sort of address one, why you think they are unpopular uh, to some people and two, why there are no, no criticisms? Well, let's start with the title of the book, Stubborn Attachments. I'm saying we should have two stubborn attachments. One is to human rights in some cases, and the other is to maximizing sustainable growth. And most of the book is really about maximizing sustainable growth. So if you take that argument seriously, it really does imply that a lot of other values we might pursue or like to talk about, uh, they matter much, much less. And I think that offends people, that their favorite value, like some particular kind of equality or social justice or meritocracy, just shouldn't really matter very much in the overall calculus. Uh, And I think that's why uh, the book is a revolution of sorts. Uh, So it's of poking the left in the eye on some of those issues, but it's poking conservatives in the eye by saying environmental sustainability is also at the center of moral theory. So it's a book in a way to alienate everyone. (laughs) And uh, I I like that about it. it. Right. Let's address both of those critiques. So one is the, the, the quality, you know, you had, you know, movements in the last decade, like Occupy Wall Street come out and say, hey, you know, even with more economic growth, you know, the gains are going, you know, increasingly to the, to the top 1%. What do you think is the best version of the Occupy Wall Street argument? And, and why is it incorrect in your view? Well, people who are billionaires, you know, take Bill Gates or people in Silicon Valley, for the most part, they have made poorer individuals better off by giving them goods and services at lower prices. There are cases, some in the United States, uh, many more globally, where, say, billionaires have become that wealthy by transferring wealth to themselves using the political process. But, you know, the inequality concern, here's the way I would put it. Since 1973, the United States has had much lower productivity growth. If you had the choice of either remedying productivity growth or keeping the old level of equality in the American economy, it turns out you would help poorer earners much, much more just by remedying the productivity growth. We would have wages much higher today. So median income, rather than being around $59,000, would be close to $100,000 for a typical American family. And that would do them much more good than, say, having remained at the earlier level of inequality. So is is best is best to tell the people who are believers in Occupy Wall Street that hey the more it goes trickle down basically the, the richer Bill Gates gets the richer you'll get too and the richer your kids will be. I would, I would tell them you should believe more in economic growth. That's the way to get virtually everyone better off. You may have justified complaints about particular rich people. You don't have to think they're faultless, uh, but nonetheless, Occupy Wall Street uh, was not mainly a movement focused on economic growth, and it should have been. Another relates to the environment is that some people say that you know, economic growth and the environment are at odds, even if you try to, to caveat them. And, and it may propose the question, why wouldn't a society in which we had more controlled growth and lived within our means, why, why couldn't that work? 
There's several different questions in there. The first is about pollution. Keep in mind that wealthier societies are less polluted along most dimensions. So right now in the world today, about 7 million people die a year from air pollution. Those are mostly people in poorer societies. Poorer societies stink. They have low quality water. You very often, you know, choke on the air. They're not pleasant places for the environment. They tend to be deforested and have ill-defined property rights. So as society becomes wealthier, along most, not all dimensions, the environment is getting better. The big important exception seems to be carbon emissions. So we do need to do something very serious to address that problem. But to go back and cease being rich, it's not going to work. It's going to make the rest of the environment worse in many other ways. We could do more to spend on research and development. We could have a carbon tax. There are many steps we could take to address the carbon emissions problem. What was the other part of your question? Yeah, why would a society in which we lived within our means work? It depends what you mean living, living within, within our means. means. The United <laughs> States has a low level of personal savings and a very high level of government debt. And that's not living within our means. So we should lower debt in the United States. We'd also have a higher growth rate, in fact. If you have a notion, well, why can't we just have zero economic growth forever? For one thing, you can't do that in a society that likes debt as much as ours does. But also, institutions tend to decay. There's a certain degree of grow or die in political systems. Interest groups become more powerful. They start engaging in more rent-seeking. You need to pay them off to a certain extent. You need a social surplus to spend on problems. We may need to build more systems to protect the Earth against asteroids, other problems that will come along. And you need wealth to do that. If we're all just living, you know, say, as hobbits, first of all, we're going to be conquered. And second of all, the environment will defeat us. You, you mentioned in the past that it's inevitable that we'll have tanks and nuclear weapons, whether we like it or not. So it's important that the more benevolent societies be more, both richer, uh, technologically advanced, and again, that we see sustainable economic growth be heralded. Is, it, is that a Strassian argument for why it's important to have America power over opposed to Russia, China? Well, I would stress, you know, the Western nations are more or less the good guys. But if someone just says the United States, I get a little nervous. We are, after all, the only country that has ever used nuclear weapons. Our history of how we've treated blacks and Native Americans is actually very, very bad. We have a gun problem domestically. So I believe more in the notion of the United States as part of a multilateral world order where we are somewhat constrained by more peacefully oriented nations. I don't just want it all up to be up to America. Right. And so what, what should our role in foreign policy be? I'm a strong believer in having a well-functioning NATO and having multilateral institutions and using free trade as a way of making the world a more peaceful and also richer place. And I think we should work much harder on lowering the risk of nuclear weapons around the world, helping countries invest in the ability to detect whether incoming signals, in fact, are a real missile strike or some kind of false alarm. To me, that's a problem we're still under-investing in, and that's to help preserve the future of our civilization. Another, another critique I'll bring up by, by bringing up a quote in your, in your book, other book, The Complacent Class, which is we've had a, a society that's no longer focused on what we can do next to spur growth uh, and instead focused on what we can do next to be more comfortable. And, and I, I'll equate, you know, one critique could be, Hey, you know, instead of me focusing on making as much money I, I, as I can, I want to focus on being, quote unquote, happy, uh, you know, or, or comfortable, and that you know, more money doesn't necessarily lead to that on an individual level. 
Why is that a faulty cultural thing to uh, to strive for? I think at the margin, if Americans in general become more ambitious and take more risk, uh, almost all of us will be better off. There'll be a higher social surplus. It'll help our society pay the bills, so to speak. We'll also have more money to redistribute. We'll be more inventive, more creative. We'll do finer and grander things. We'll have a greater chance of you know, settling other planets or the galaxy. Uh, Health care will improve, all, all kinds of second-order benefits. But if you know, if one lone individual does that and no one else is on board, it won't lead to much. So it's sort of a collective. We all have to be bought in. Right. So norms ought to be stronger in the direction of ambition, risk-taking, entrepreneurship, venture capital for that matter. Right. And you're very big on symbols and symbolism. One of the groups of people that you think have sort of the best norms for economic growth are, are Mormons. Can you unpack that? Well, in Mormon theology, as I understand it, there's a strong emphasis on working hard and getting ahead and also giving back to your community. And I think both in terms of the data, like the state of Utah is doing quite well. It has an intact middle class. And uh, also anecdote, I see this reflected in the behavior of many Mormons I know, the strong work ethic, a community-oriented ethic. And I'm not saying people have to convert to Mormonism, but again, at the margin, it seems most of us should be more like this than we are. Right. You, you mentioned that in The Great Stagnation, that social mobility might be perhaps a bit overrated. But uh, when you talk about symbols, you know, the American dream that anyone can make it is, a, is very important for, for economic growth. How do you square that? Well, I think what's happened is since the 1960s, upward mobility in the United States has become much more difficult, uh, especially for people who were born in America. And some of that is we regulate our economy more. Some of it is a kind of malaise stemming from just being a wealthier country. Some of it, I think, is the technologies we have had. They're great, but they've exhausted a lot of their potential at the margin. And you have just too many Americans born into mediocre circumstances, and then they stay there, and this pattern repeats for generations. So that was not the case for America in the immediate post-war era. And I think we could learn something from that older America and be more like that, too. What about sort of the broader critique, uh, for people who critique, quote-unquote, neoliberalism, which I understand to be the desire to strip political institutions of their political logic in favor of sort of an economic logic or or put markets in everything. And that and the critique being that it can reduce, you know, meaning or social bonds from everything from, you know, how we vote to how we date, make friends. H- how would you respond to that critique? Well, I don't think we should have markets in everything. Uh, for instance, we should not have markets in politics. You shouldn't be allowed to buy people's votes. You shouldn't be allowed to just buy legislation. In the context of friendships, friendships usually work precisely because people do not trade everything. They do each other unilateral favors. So I do think it's corrosive if you rely on markets that way. Uh, when people use the word neoliberalism, I get nervous. It's always, almost always meant negatively. And then there's a kind of caricature as to what neoliberals are supposed to believe. But if what you're for you know, is rule of law and some kind of democratically oriented capitalism with high quality institutions and good governance and a lot of capitalism, I think that's basically the way we ought to go. And if that's what someone means by neoliberalism, great. But usually, again, you hear the word and you, you know someone is going to take a jab at something, uh, maybe somewhat unjustly. Right. Another question or critique for you could be, why are you so focused on technological innovation, but perhaps skeptical of social innovation? And do you think that the radical advances of the last 250 years can be divorced from sort of social innovations such as welfare state, labor union, 
that flourished precisely at the moments of greatest economic growth? Uh, that's a very good point. I'm writing a, a longish paper now, which has a big section on social innovation as an important means of innovation. And it's just that I haven't gotten to that topic yet. But I do think it's both important and undervalued. And if you look at China's rapid economic growth, a lot of their innovations, it's not just they're copying American technology, though clearly they are, but they've come up with ways of making autocratic government more effective than it used to be. And that's been a very powerful social and institutional innovation. I, I think, think we, we need, need to study, study that more. Should, do you think we should be copying from them? Uh, I, I don't, don't think, think we should, should become, become more autocratic. autocratic. Uh, but I think China in, say, the 1990s was a far, far better functioning government than, say, China in 1970 or during the Cultural Revolution. They figured out ways of taking public opinion into account in autocracies without destabilizing the system. And that's actually one of the biggest advances humanity has seen in the last 50 years. People hardly talk about it. So once you're a well-functioning democracy, you don't want to go back. But very few countries start off as democracies. Usually they grow into it. And you want this better autocratic path rather than a worse one. Uh, you mentioned stability there. Oh, another critique question could be, why, why so much emphasis on technological advancement rather than stabilization and social cohesion? And is it always self-evident that more technological advancement leads to, the, to, to more stabilization and social cohesion? Well, the countries, I think, that have proven the most stable and the most cohesive, they are the most technologically advanced. And that would be, you know, the West, Japan, Singapore, Australasia. I think you can raise perfectly good questions about which way does the causal error run. Is it technology to stability, stability to technology, wealth is a third factor mediating both? Uh, I don't think we really know, but I do think we observe there's this consistent package where all those good things go together. And that to me suggests, you know, we should be investing more in all of them. So, so it's, it's not, not the, the case, case to say, you know, Denmark, Denmark is falling apart, but Papua New Guinea is a model of harmony. It's just not how the world works. One of the things I think I see you sort of calling for in this book is sort of a, a rebranding or call to arms sort of rebrand economic growth and, and, and sort of make it more of a you know, aspirational a thing to aspire for. And that, you know, communism, socialism, perhaps is much more naturally inspiring because it's it's how we, uh, you know, people die with, you know, soldiers died with the word Stalin on their lips. Soldiers aren't dying with the words free markets on their lips, perhaps because it's m most native to how they treat their family members and friends. But these, you know, these concepts of economic growth, compounded growth are just more non-intuitive uh, or tougher to explain to people why minimum wage, you know, won't help them. Is, is that what you're trying to do here? Uh, yes. And a lot of my books for the last 20 years, you can think of as being in that tradition, creating a new but true, quote unquote, mythology of economic growth and progress one suited for modern democratic capitalism that one hopes people will find more inspiring or at least more morally compelling. Does this mean we should sort of rebrand sort of, you know, people treat sort of uh, look disdain for people who are just trying to make money or you say that they're selling out or, or people going to Wall Street or something? Should we instead say that they're making society more sustainable and better for the long term? People who are, you know, trying to trying to make that money? Well, I think you need to look carefully at individual cases. But for the most part, I think of these people as heroes. They're living out common sense morality. If they're, you know, a good friend and loyal to their family and working hard and saving money and paying taxes and contributing to civilization. From my point of view, it's hard to think of anything more glorious than that. And I would like for that to have higher social status. I mean, clearly, there are destructive people out there, quite a few. Uh, but most people, their net social contribution is pretty high. 
Right. And, and people sort of have this false dichotomy of doing, you know, doing something for the love or for the art or doing something for, for, or for values versus doing something for the money. But if, if you, you know, if, if you are in fact contributing to economic growth, then that is perhaps the highest value thing you could do. And if you read the letter, say, of Mozart, he says, writing to his father, well, father, it's money that's motivating me more than anything else. And there's nothing wrong with that. Shakespeare also. So why do some people say that that makes them, it takes, it makes them less human or, or less pure in some way? What sort of the, where does that come from? I think from? it's a hypocrisy. So many of the great creators have been motivated selfishly and by the desire to earn or build some kind of personal or commercial empire. That's much closer to the norm than the exception. It's not true for everyone, of course. And I think there's a resentment of that. And people you know at the fringes wanting to snipe or lower the status of the people who have succeeded. It's this Rene Girard sense of we need to find some sacrifices and take some people down. There's this, uh, you know, E.O. Wilson quote that was mentioned in another inter interview of yours that we have paleoithic uh, emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike uh, technology. And you know, you see us as trying to improve the godlike technology, which is economic growth. In, in a world in which we are able to, you know, the far future with enough economic growth, we are able to sort of reprogram some of our emotions. Do you think, like, how will this all ch change? Or is that too hard of a question? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, a very deep question. If you look at the arguments in my book, what I say is we can only judge more economic growth as better in a state of affairs where human beings are more or less the same as what we know them to be. So if we could create some kind of future where human beings are genetically transformed and almost like aliens to us, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I think I am saying my framework cannot address whether or not that's a good thing, just like we cannot really compare the well-being of human beings to animals. It seems to me animals should count for something, but there's so many of them. You can't just like add up all the chipmunks out there and say they count for much more than human beings. So I do think there are certain incommensurabilities and the arguments for compound returns and economic growth, they're all within a framework where humans are still recognizably human. And I don't think we can really go beyond that. You mentioned Mormons as someone we should admire. Why not hip hop artists as well, or, or other sort of uh, genres that are known for glorifying the pursuit of, of money? Oh, I'm a big fan of hip hop, as are you. And of course, I've written you for hip hop suggestions. There's also a very strong work ethic in a lot of hip hop. And uh, an appreciation that consumer-driven capitalism can be very creative and productive. So I'm completely on board there. It just takes more explaining to people. And there are some people who will be skeptical about that claim no matter what. Whereas when you say Mormon, the notion that Mormons work hard and are productive, it's easier for everyone to see right away. Right. And one difference between Mormons and hip hop artists, they both make money, but Mormons are perhaps known to save more or invest and save in long-term future, whereas, whereas hip-hop is more, uh, they make it, but they spend it in the moment or soon? Uh, that's that's a casual intuition. I wonder if it's correct. I'd love to see data on savings rates of hip-hop artists. Uh, I'm not sure which way it would go. So, right. Cowan's second law says there's a literature on everything. A lot of creators save a lot of money. They want to, you know, support their next project, if nothing else. Yeah. It is interesting. There's sort of, you know, in urban communities, people say that, not all, you know, African American kids, for example, should, or they say it's a problem that they only look up to hip hop artists and NBA players. And I think on, on one dimension, it, it, it might be justified in the sense that, hey, only few people 
can be HIPAA partisan NBA players, so they should in fact try to be other thing, other things. But on another dimension, I think they maybe perhaps take it too far in, in the implication that it's not all about making money. I, I think part of it's that that too. I guess how would you respond to that broad idea? Well, I think looking up to NBA players is great, but we need to broaden our understanding of what they do. So you look at the very best, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, LeBron James. One thing they all have in common is they are great, really great businessmen who have earned a lot more than just what they were paid to play the game. And if we would look up to that side of them more and have that message spread further, and they had these incredible work ethics and still do to this day, I think that would be very significant. So when someone says, look up to NBA players, you know, I say absolutely, but let's frame it the right way. Uh, and we'll get to some more NBA later. But are there certain, you, you mentioned Mormon faith, super compatible with economic growth. Are there certain belief systems that are perhaps incompatible with growth? Maybe Buddhism, for example? Yeah, again, there's a literature on this, Cowan's Second Law. So Buddhist countries tend to be in a particular part of the world. And that part of the world, for geographic reasons, may have slower economic growth. So if Bhutan is relatively poor, maybe it's because the country is landlocked rather than Buddhist. And Buddhism also has had a big influence in East Asia, much of which is not poor. It's very fashionable to say that Islam is somehow bad for prosperity. In medieval times, the Muslim countries were wealthier. When Muslim migrants come to the United States, they tend to have higher levels of income or education, actually, than, say, you know, my group of Irish Americans. So I'm not sure, you know, Islam is bad for prosperity or economic growth uh, overall. So... I'm not saying all religions will be equally good for it, but I think knocking down the cliches would be the first order of business and then trying to figure out seriously what the correct answer is. What about the uh, phrase, make America great again? How is that for economic growth? It's very backward looking, great again. I mean, America has always been badly flawed. And I think when people are more forward looking, like the new frontier, the great society, I'm not saying you have to agree with all of those policies. But to me, it's a much more appealing vision. Let's look forward. Let's build for the future. You know, let's think we can do this. There's something to me defeatist about make America great again. It's your belief that we need to accord higher status to, to scientists. What, what other yes. do we need to accord higher status to? And how is that status conferred in general? Well, business people, scientists, and people who raise children, which on average is mothers, but not always. So I would like to see much higher status in all of those areas. And then people who teach young children, they're underpaid and being a kindergarten teacher is not very high status in the United States. But from the work of Raj Chetty, we know that's an extremely productive profession if you're good at it. So those would be the shifts I would make. Conversely, in terms of ideas that don't promote economic growth, is that why you're not a fan of basic income? Because it signals that people don't need to work and thus won't contribute to economic growth? It devalues work, and I think people, they want work. They want the social networks that come from work. They want the place in the world. They want that sense of status and belonging. And, you know, I, I believe we should have a welfare system to help people, but as much as possible, it should pay them to do work, not to avoid work. How would your alternative identity, Tyrone, respond to stubborn attachments? This is what Tyrone would say. You know, stubborn attachments, it's all about building and sustaining growth for the distant future. Tyrone is very pessimistic, and he would say there isn't really much of a distant future. Weapons of mass destruction are too powerful. The world is going through moral decay. There's just collapse in the future no matter what. So there's no holy grail out there to be chasing. Everything is just 
a mess that's going to get worse and there are no compound returns, maybe negative compound returns. Uh, and that's the Tyler's framework doesn't answer any of the questions, which are all about how do we manage our decline? That's what he would say up in the attic. <laughs> do, uh, and I'm curious about Tyrone more broadly and the phenomenon of us all having our own inner, inner Tyrones. Do you imagine a world in which identity is more decentralized, one in terms of compartmentalization, but two in terms of perhaps security that maybe we won't give out our full, you know, our full name in the same way that we don't give out our bank account information? It seems to me there's something deeply screwed up about a system for verifying your identity where a stranger over the phone says, what are the last four digits of your social? And you just tell the person like it's some kind of secret, but at the same time you're telling a stranger. I feel that even a very stupid person would understand this is probably not a good system. Now, I'm well aware of all the different problems with other methods of verifying identity and blockchain isn't there yet and so on. But it seems to me within 20 years, we will in some way figure this out, actually verifying people's identities in a way that will limit credit theft and minimize a lot of other problems, including, you know, people hacking into your online systems. The book doesn't spend a ton of time getting into it. It spends most of the time explaining the case for why we should care about economic growth, but not it's not a book on what produces economic growth. What, what, what sort of disagreements do you have with people about how to produce more economic growth? Well, when you say people, I think with most economists, there is broad, though not universal agreement as to what we ought to do. Uh, governments should produce and or subsidize public goods, but private producers should be left free to invest and reap a high return from their labor. Uh, I very much believe in subsidizing basic science through the government. Uh, but also, most of all, to build on that, you need for entrepreneurs to have freedom and not over-regulate the economy. I'm worried a bit that we're slipping into a new consensus where the professional class is so sort of oriented toward the left that they're emphasizing the, the public goods component of those arguments and de-emphasizing the importance of entrepreneurship and risk-taking and private innovation. But you need both. Aside from economic growth, and, and human rights, what, what other stubborn attachments should we have, in your view, collectively or perhaps at the individual level? One I noticed you have, perhaps, or, or a case you want to make is that we should crusade against alcohol or, or, or against the, the idea that we that alcohol is somehow normalized. Or... Well, I think the striking thing of the book is the argument that there are precisely only these two stubborn attachments and no more. That's what people have a hard time digesting. Oh, of course, growth is important. Of course, I believe in rights. They'll say... They're not insincere, but then they have a whole list of other goals they want to pursue at the expense of growth and rights. So, you know, you mentioned alcohol. I've argued people should drink less, uh, but that's a contingent attachment, right? You know, if drinking a bit more would boost economic growth, I'd be completely on board. But stubborn attachments, only those two, that's the thing hard for people to digest. Right. And, but what about this idea of Crisonia plants, uh, sort of, you know, gifts that keep on giving? Where else do they show up in our lives? Where, what, what other Crusonia plants should we be pursuing more of? Well, my notion of a Crusonia plant is some initial investment you make where it yields a return, and then the return gives you a return, and then you get more and more. It's like planting an apple tree, and you get apples and seeds and more apples and more trees. So the most important Crusonia plant we have is just good institutions. They tend to breed good outcomes, and good outcomes in turn strengthen our institutions. And that is much of the history of the West for the last few hundred years. Uh, you could say human beings are a kind of Crusonia plant because they produce children who in turn produce wealth. 
and that in turn allows the world to support a greater number of people. Uh, at some point, the number of people in the world may go down. That would complicate that story somewhat. But I'm actually an optimist on population. I think the Earth will be able to support a higher number of people, and we'll be able to make that work if we make some good basic decisions. What sort of implication of the, uh, of, of this concerning plan of economic growth is also seeing the world more through a positive sum than a zero-sum lens? That Absolutely. The more economic growth there is, the more, more there is for everybody. Patrick Olson recently had a tweet where he talked about how he used to see recognition and credit as more scarce than it is, and in fact sees it as uh, as abundant that when you give it to someone, it doesn't take away from giving it when you give it to someone else or make it any less meaningful. How would you respond to that? Uh, I agree fully. In fact, about 15 years ago, I wrote a whole book, What Price Fame, arguing that recognition is positive sum. And one of the biggest gains of the internet, not really measured in GDP, is how many new niches it creates where you can justly feel good about being the best at something, the third best at something, well-known at something. Uh, you know, podcasting is one example. It doesn't show up in GDP, but you, Eric Tornberg, can have this feeling of satisfaction. Well, I have a successful podcast. It's really good. And without the internet, there's just so many fewer spheres where you can do that. There's like high school football. There's like, you know, who has the, the best clothing in a particular cocktail party. But those are much more zero sum. The internet, just this vast multiplication of matching people to what they really enjoy doing and giving them credit for it. Right. There are people famous as Amazon book reviewers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you and they enjoy it. Yeah. And, and Yelp reviewers. Uh, yes. And you recently wrote a post about sort of the asymmetric returns to giving young people, you know, telling them that they, they can think bigger or, or that they can, that they're onto something. And that's one of the things you're trying to do with, with emergent ventures. That's right. I should stress, it's not enough to just tell people nice things. That's cheap talk. To spend real time with them or give them some kind of assistance makes it much more credible. So in a way, you need to make it somewhat scarce, but you also can hand out much more of it. Right. Right. We talked about population a couple minutes ago. You addressed the repugnant conclusion that your mentor, par, par, uh, how do you pronounce it, Parfait? Parfait. Derek Parfait. Derek Parfait uh, came to that basically in a world in which you're trying to maximize utility that might lead to a world with many, many people with small utility, like Muzak and Potatoes was his example, versus you know fewer amount of people with living a more quality life. Uh, how, how do you address that in the book? I don't think the repugnant conclusion can be solved. So there are some comparisons where there just is no objectively correct answer. So if you recall our chat 10 or 15 minutes ago, what if human beings were fundamentally different from the way they are today? Would that be better or worse? I don't think we can say under any framework, but certainly not within my framework. So if we're trying to compare human lives we know to say a total of 20 quadrillion human lives that last for five minutes and they feed you a potato, play you some music, and then you die, those are not human lives as we know them. I don't think you can make that comparison one way or the other. Right. We're going to play a game called If You Could Wave a Wand and, and Change Anything. First, I'm going to say uh, the Department of Education. Oh, you, oh, you mean, mean within, within the Department, Department of Education? Education. Yeah, and then they could, they could I would make removing it. You know, yeah, once you have departments, departments, it's very hard to get rid of them in useful ways, and what they do tends to end up in other governmental units, often being done worse. But the Department of Education, I think, should make accrediting an easier process. It should make it easier for quality online education to be a source of credit 
It should ease the path, the path for vocational education. And in general, I think the federal government uses its funding of universities to enforce too much power. Like it requires universities to have this whole system of IRBs, institutional review boards for research, which I think is mostly a negative. So there's a lot I would do if I were head of the Department of Education. But ironically, if you just abolished the department, you'd never get any of those things done. It's like you need the department itself at this point to change some of those things back. What about the prison system? Uh, What about the prison system? First, I would not send anyone to prison for possession of drugs ever. Uh, I'm not saying I would completely legalize these drugs. I would decriminalize them. But I think it is morally wrong to lock people up for that reason. In general, I would be willing to take more chances letting criminals out earlier. And I do understand that would in some ways mean more crime. But our current prison system, it's like a nation of its own. It's broken and it's sick and it's unjust. And a lot of innocent people get sent away. And even if you're guilty of a crime, the chance you will be beaten up, abused, raped can really be pretty high. And that to me is cruel and unusual punishment. So when I talk in stubborn attachments of human rights, uh, one of those human rights is simply the right to have your punishment be humane rather than what we're serving up right now. Our political process. You mean in the United States? United States, yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of our Constitution. I can't think of very much of it I would like to change. I would be happy if people knew more about it and understood it better. But I think in 2018, under very unusual political circumstances, it's proving quite robust. So the big mechanisms, I don't really want to tinker with them. They're focal. Uh, We more or less abide by them. I think we probably have the best Constitution in the world. Our healthcare system. Our healthcare system. Oh, I would change so much about that. First, so much of healthcare doesn't even make you healthier. So you look at data like on a lot of kinds of knee operations, back operations, they seem to have zero marginal product. So there's something wrong with the basic incentives of the system. Uh, price transparency, we need much more of it. So you can go to a hospital or a doctor and you just try to ask a simple question. What's the price for doing this? Uh, It's very hard to learn what the answer is for that. And every economist will tell you that means something is badly, badly wrong. In the U.S. in particular, I think we spend too much on the health care of older people and not enough on the health care of younger people. Uh, It takes too long to get a new drug approved. It can take 10 years and a billion or more dollars. That limits innovation. So to me, our healthcare system is one of the most screwed up parts of our economy and society. And there are many, many ways we could improve it. Some people say that there's a crisis of liberalism, that somehow capitalism and democracy are incompatible in some way. Can you describe this crisis as you see it, and how would you respond to it? That's become the fashionable claim, because a lot of governments have been elected that people don't like. So in this country, it's the Trump administration, and I would say I am myself not a fan. But that said, it seems to me democracy in the United States is entirely intact. This year, we're growing at 3%. You don't have to credit Trump for that, but it's a fact, and it's great news. We're at or near full employment. So the idea that in well-functioning societies, there's some crisis that's about to blow us apart, it's really strongly at variance with the data. And people who insist this is true, I like to ask them a simple question. I just say, are you short the market? And they're like, huh? What? I say, are you short the market? And like, never have I met a person where the answer is yes. So like, oh. Well, my retirement fund, my equities, I'm I'm like long everything they'll say. It's like, gee, 
you're not actually much of a pessimist. This is your kind of cheap talk pessimism. Now, if someone wants to say, well, there are some countries in the world, like simplest example is Venezuela, that are falling apart, that is correct. But you look at the main capitalist democracies with some tradition of good institutions, most of them, maybe all of them, they're really doing pretty well. If you could wave one, what would you change about foreign aid? Oh, foreign aid. People mean different things by foreign aid. I mean, most of the foreign aid we actually give is protecting countries with our military. So I would actually like to make that more credible. American power in some ways is diminishing. Some of that is inevitable. But I think our current regime with President Trump has been too unpredictable and too volatile and too unreliable. And that's actually a big cut in foreign aid. I think the transfer of dollars, foreign aid, is a net gain to the countries which receive it, but maybe not as much as do-gooders like to insist. But it does do some good, unlike what the critics suggest. But it's become awfully bureaucratic. And one thing I find very encouraging is just the number of private wealthy people. You know, Bill Gates is one example of many who are trying to innovate in this space and do different things to help other countries, you know, push back against malaria, polio. I have my own efforts, my royalties from stubborn attachments. Uh, I'm donating them all to a poor man in Ethiopia whom I call Jonas. And all the money I will get from the book goes to Jonas as a direct cash transfer. And Jonas supports a family of about 10 people in rural Ethiopia. We'll see how much that helps him, of course. But I am cautiously optimistic. Talking about dem- demographics for a second, Africa, you know, the rise, rise of China, African demographics, two of the biggest changes we can expect. How will that play into the new world order? I'm mostly optimistic about Africa, at least the parts of Africa which are at peace. So I grew up where the common expectation was wondering whether Africa could grow at all. And you now have a whole bunch of countries, say, growing at 7%. Ethiopia at times has grown at 10%. You look at Ivory Coast, Senegal, Ghana, Kenya, Rwanda, a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Nigeria is a much more complicated picture, but there's still an enormous amount of dynamism there and creativity and immense human talent. The places where you still have wars, direct conflict, you know, Congo, obviously, Niger, I don't think I'm an optimist until they have some kind of peace come, but I think Africa will be able to support itself. There's so much low-hanging fruit there in terms of improving agriculture, institutions, removing the burden of disease. Uh, Rise of China is great for China. I worry about uh, the potential for great power conflict. I worry about Southeast Asian countries having their arms twisted, being brought into the orbit. On that, I think it's definitely a, a good thing for the world. China is already innovating, including in the tech space. We will all benefit from those innovations. It will help us afford our own debt and stupidity. Why are charter cities seen as such a moonshot for development, even though foreign aid is known to work so poorly? I just had my own podcast with Paul Romer uh, yesterday, and he and I talked about this. I think the goal with charter cities is to think there are places that have a lot of talent but bad legal systems. So if they could in some way import their legal system from abroad, they'd be much better off. Clearly, this worked with Hong Kong. There's no doubt there. Puerto Rico, which has partly a U.S. legal system, you know, it is by far uh, the wealthiest place in the Caribbean. That would be a partial success story. But I don't think it's easy because Charter City, it sounds like a kind of conquest. There can be indigenous pushback, especially in today's world. It's hard to adopt the legal system of an outside entity without having the same culture. So maybe the scope for charter cities will always be limited. 
but like conditional on whether or not you can do it, it seems to me there are big potential gains. If you could wave one and change anything about the NBA and the New York Knicks as an organization in terms of them having a chance to win the championship, what would those things be? Well, let's start with the NBA. Uh, this year, 2018, it seems to me there's too much scoring. I saw a game last night, the Wizards against the Cavaliers, which are two bad teams. And until they put in the scrubs, it looked like a game where the Wizards would go over 130 points, and for no good reason. So the idea that the game is all like switching and three-point shots and run it down the court quickly, uh, to me that actually gets somewhat boring. And to move a bit back toward older styles of play, so in terms of how the referees call fouls, what kinds of zone defenses are allowed, I'd like to see more half-court offense. The way the San Antonio Spurs played in their glory days with Tim Duncan, David Robinson, Tony Parker. To me, that was very high-quality kind of basketball, more interesting to watch than what they're playing today. Today, Golden State is tremendous fun, but a lot of the other teams, it just feels like run and gun and not that sophisticated. So that's how I would reform the NBA, a bunch of complex rules changes to turn back the clock a bit, but not too much. Three-point shots are fun, but we don't want too many of them and 130 points is too much. Now, the New York Knicks, I was a Knicks fan when I was 10. I remember 1972 and Willis Reed and Jerry Lucas. I saw, you know, Clyde Frazier play many times. They haven't been good in a long time. And you have to wonder, is this random noise, or is this something wrong with the institution? There's at least a plausible claim there's something wrong with the institution. So New York fans, they somehow want a big star, or you have to fill the seats. Or it's embarrassing. So they make big mistakes like bringing in Carmelo Anthony or maybe now chasing after Kevin Durant. Uh, they just need to tear down and try to build like a halfway decent normal team and then hope for some luck and stop obsessing over the fact that they're in New York. That's how I would reform the New York Knicks. You, you, th you think uh, Kevin Durant would be a mistake? Well, he wouldn't be a mistake if they got him, but it's a mistake to pin your hopes on him because it would be foolish of him to go there. So if you're like clearing salary cap and making other decisions under the hope that Durant comes, even if Durant, they're not a championship team, they may not even be a top three in the East team. So just make good, sound decisions with the long run in mind to return to stubborn attachments and hope that compounds. And that's how the great basketball organizations, in fact, have built themselves up. But there's something short term about like New York fans and mentality, Madison Square Garden, we've got to win now, bring back the glory days. It seems to me destructive. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, one of the biggest arbitrage or opportunities New York has or, or greatest strengths is that it's a place where people want to play, and yet they somehow turn it into a weakness. And it sometimes seems to destroy people. So the media can be so vicious. All your weaknesses are dissected under a microscope. That to be in a city like Milwaukee, San Antonio, Toronto, Maybe those actually are better cities for basketball. Yeah. You know, I have, I have a complicated relationship with the, the game of basketball that you've actually complicated even further recently. You know, Bill Gates uh, came to, uh, you know, talk to our entrepreneurs recently and he was saying that, you know, the things you did between age 11 and 19, where you spent your most time, you have an unfair advantage, you know, grow, uh, in your adulthood. And he spent most of his time software, of course, building products. Whereas I spent most of my time watching NBA and memorizing NBA trivia and playing fantasy basketball. And part of me, you know, loves to watch, loves to follow what's going on. I feel like part of me thinks that it's some sort of sunk cost fallacy that I, I just, I know so much about it. I'm, you know, I, I have uh, too much attachment to it and perhaps stubbornly attachment to it. 
The other side of my brain refers to article you, re- you recently wrote, which uh, is sort of a defense of, of watching. Can you unpack that a little bit, or how would you address my my dilemma of wanting to be you know fully productive and, and maximize my, my my strengths while also having this uh, this attachment? Well, let me try to redefine your life for you, even though, of course, I didn't know you back then. You spent your early years obsessing over evaluating talent. Who are the good players? How can we tell? How should they play together? Which statistics are meaningful? What trades should be made? Which team will win the championship? And what you were doing is evaluating talent, and the NBA was just like the vessel you chose. And now what you're doing is venture capital, and that, too, is fundamentally about evaluating talent building teams, seeking compound returns, trying to figure out what will be the next big thing, who's a good coach, who's a bad coach. Uh, so maybe your early years were exactly prepping you for what you've ended up doing. Can I talk you into that? <laughs> Tyler, this is a breakthrough no therapist could ever ever help me uh, help me achieve. You can talk so you can that. feel really good now. But you should also ask yourself, like, how good was your understanding of the NBA back then? That's true. And if it was terrible, then you ought to start worrying, right? Right. <laughs> But uh, moving forward, should I continue watching? Should you continue watching uh, on a limited basis? But yes, it's a way it forces you to keep on thinking about measurement, talent evaluation, teamwork, management. So we all need some vehicle for following these topics. It is not just like management itself. So uh, following music is another way of thinking about management. Uh, I think it can be very useful. So it's a way of getting a lateral perspective on the other things you do in your uh, business career. Yeah. There are a lot of yeah, metaphors I take from basketball. Uh, one is this idea that you know when you're playing pickup basketball, if, if you, you want to take a shot that you think has, a, say, a 50% chance of making it, but if you have an open three and you think, hey, I have a 15% chance of making it, but if, if you know your team and if you don't shoot it, you pass the ball and someone else is going to shoot a shot that they have 5% chance of making it, perhaps you shoot that shot. And I feel that that scenario plays in other uh, other scenarios as well in in, in real life um, we think about like relative opportunities and and selection another example that plays to mind that i want to ask you about is this idea that steph curry is the best shooter of all time let's just say for for example even though I, he did a master class on this so he is he can describe how he shoots but let's just say there, there are a lot of great shooters who wouldn't be able to teach other people how to shoot Whereas, you know, if we, if we said, Hey, I'm a great venture capital investor. I just pick great companies, but I can't really describe what it is I'm doing that allows me to consistently win. We would discount that idea. And, and the idea, the reason why we don't discount Steph Curry is because, you know, you could see the results. He just makes it right after one after another. Whereas picking an investment takes 10 years. And there are a lot of things that don't even have any feedback loops at all. But I'm curious how many things are sort of, in the Steph Curry world where the ability to do it is totally separate from the ability to describe it. And how how much are more in the world of if you can't describe it, you don't know it or you can't do it. Well, I think everything is about training and it's striking to me, you know, Steph Curry, he's not that young anymore. And this is arguably his best shooting season ever. So he's still working on getting better. And maybe he can't describe exactly the way he leans or balances himself when he's taking a shot. But he very much could describe his regimen and how many shots he takes and how he works out in the gym and whatever diet he has. So I think he could articulate most of it very, very well. And it's no accident he learned a lot about shooting from his father, who articulated it to him when he was growing up. So I I think Steph Curry is an example in favor of the importance of articulability. And those who can articulate uh, tend to be those who can do. It doesn't mean you can explain every bit of your intuition. 
But I would say in life, think of everything as training and figure out how to improve and try to get on those curves of compound improvement. So it's another, another way studying sports, sports can help you understand management or venture capital. Right. Like you really should be able to explain why you make certain decisions. The, the concept specialist versus generalist, and you've thought about this and you sort of defined yourself as specializing as a generalist. Did this mean that you specialized first and then specialized in a bunch of other fields? Or how would you sort of describe this idea of specializing as a generalist as your moat? And how can other people or, or, or should other people think about following your footsteps? I always specialized as a generalist and pretty consciously just for selfish reasons. Uh, I'd get bored if I just studied the same thing over and over again. And I thought, even though the world is encouraging me to do that, if I have my own motivation on my side, I'll do better than if I do what everyone else I know is telling me. And that worked out okay. So I've been kind of training in social sciences philosophy actually since I was 13, 14 years old, like full-time training every single day. Right after training. You know, when I was starting high school, I was working on this. I'd come home. I'd read Adam Smith. I would try to improve my knowledge of economics, do other things try to meet people, network in the right way. So just like unceasingly now, I guess for 42 years or so, I've been working at this full time. So I would say like, if you can start as soon as you can, no reason not to. What about this idea of you don't want to get caught in the middle between you're trying to be a specialist or trying to specialize as a generalist and, and not doing either. What does it mean tactically to like go all in on specializing as a generalist, does it mean picking two or three disciplines and being, you know, interdisciplinary between them? Or how can people follow that, that in a more tactical way? It's all context dependent, but I've observed the people who succeed in becoming a generalist, the things they know about are the areas they love and that drives them. So like, I'm not like a true generalist. Do I know anything about chemistry? No. Does chemistry bore me? Yes. Should I try to learn chemistry? Maybe a little more, but it will never be my thing. So I pick the areas where my own interest will give me compound returns over decades. And that's the amount of generalization I end up with. And that's how I think about how far it should go. Right. You know, Kevin Kelly, a few others have warned against the idea of premature specialization or premature optimization, whereas others have said, hey, the school system is sort of messed up, right? The K-12, if you're great at math, you should just be doing math all the time. What are your thoughts on premature optimization and specialization? Well, well most people, people should specialize, and indeed they do specialize, and they work as specialists, and that's fine. It's an Adam Smith division of labor. It will always be the case. But there's also a logic where the more people specialize, the more room that opens up for some of us to become generalists. We synthesize. We carry knowledge from one area to another. We bring people together. We help them see strengths maybe they themselves didn't know they had. There's a kind of back and forth logic. The more specialization you get, that creates gains for generalists. Like to prematurely specialize, if you want to be a CEO, you shouldn't prematurely specialize. But, you know, most people in life won't be CEOs, and they probably should specialize pretty early on. How should more people think about building their moats? I find most people are actually quite poor at articulating what they're truly good at. And they're very good at articulating what they're not good at. They may not want to articulate what they're bad at, but if forced to do it, they could do it and they would be pretty honest. But when you ask people like, what are you really good at? They'll be like, well, I'm kind of smart or I work pretty hard or like I work well with others. And like, maybe that's vaguely true, but that's no answer at all. Like, what exactly are you good at? I find people are, are fairly hopeless on that. 
So I would say step one is to find other people who will honestly and analytically tell you what you're really good at in a way that you are willing and able to absorb. And that sounds like it should be so much fun. But people hardly ever do that, in fact. Let's give an example. Is it like, is Robin Hansen's moat that he's willing to pursue sort of weirder ideas with quality level that people couldn't match? Or, or, or how would you describe Brian Kaplan's moat or Russ Roberts' moat? Brian Kaplan's moat is that he has really an extreme degree of enthusiasm. He has remarkable self-confidence of a particular kind. I would say almost everyone would say like that self-confidence is too high, but in a way it's self-validating. He enjoys like mastering literatures and other literatures. He's very willing to approach other people and ask for feedback or instruction or guidance, like way more willing than other academics are. That's a big part of his success. And then he's just like hugely social. He wants to sit down every day at lunch or some other venue and just talk through with other people, his ideas, their ideas. And just he's like smart. And then like the other kind of very general things. But that would be Brian's moat. And he's totally willing to be weird and feels like very weak pressures to conform at all. I would say Robin's moat, like Robin has the highest IQ of everyone in the George Mason group. And he thinks abstractly very, very well. And that he can think abstractly and that in his work, he's willing to go meta so quickly, fits very well together. And uh, Robin, he kind of has no pride in the sense like he will bow down to an argument and he will like admit what's right or what's wrong within a particular sphere of argumentation. If you make a point against Robin within like Robin's framework, Robin will just say, yes, that's right. I was wrong and then adopt the new view. Those would be some of his strengths. I don't think he has the kind of, I'm going to write every day and tell the whole world what I think. Enthusiasm, like every day, every week, he has it maybe a bit more selectively, but he does have enough of it to put things out there. You, you talk about in another podcast, you talk about sort of meta-rationality and epistemological modesty, and, and that you know uh, perhaps IQ will be less important than it is today in the future. And, and what might be more important is when to defer and when not to defer. Can you unpack that idea a little bit? Well, computers, machines are getting better. Artificial intelligence is improving. So often its judgment is better than ours, but it's not always better, right? AI is still imperfect or it requires human modification or intervention. But if you're a human working with machines, you need to know when is the machine right and when are you right? So if you're properly epistemically modest, you get the power of the intellect of the machine on your side. If you're too conceited and arrogant, even if you're really smart and you just, oh, the machine doesn't know, I'm going to override the machine all the time, uh, you'll end up being stupider. So the more, not just machines, but just there's internet wisdom out there, it's easier to meet other smart people. The more you know how to defer and to whom to defer, like the bigger a comparative advantage you have. And what bodies of knowledge are, like, what's a framework for knowing, hey, I shouldn't learn chemistry because that's, you know, on the internet and I can learn, you know, that I can just pick that up when I need it really quickly, or I shouldn't, you know, read, uh, you know, memorize NBA trivia from the 90s versus actually it's pretty important that I understand, you know, Austrian economics super deeply so that I can compare it. And, and you, especially as someone who's, you know, some people call an encyclopedia of information, how have you thought about when to outsource or defer versus when to you know, decide. Well, I would start with the notion that like really almost everyone should learn to write well and learn to write easily. And that sounds trivial, but we do not as a society succeed 
in getting people to that point. So just everyone should write well and write a lot. No matter what your job, you can write in a diary, you can, you know, write for your spouse or your free or three friends on Facebook. But I think that's essential for thinking and also for networking. Past that point, again, I think you've got to take the person and look at, you know, what is the person really good at? And uh, our schools seem to be failing us that like the best third of American schools are pretty good in terms of channeling people into areas where they will succeed. But there's so much wasted talent in America. And you see this actually, you know, in hip hop or in the NBA, you see these incredible talents like their musical talents or sport talents, but they're also like super smart or super dedicated. And if they hadn't had, say, the sporting talent, the other talents they have completely would have gone to waste because we're not selecting for those talents properly and motivating people the right way. And what would be uh, yes, your recommendation? Like, how should we be selecting for be- better talent or motivating people? Um, more of the world should be like venture capital. Ideally, I would like us to work on setting up institutions where outsiders can profit if an individual has done well in his or her career. Different ways you might hold equity in people. I know that's legally awkward and it maybe makes for bad public relations. But, you know, altruism alone is not going to do it. So I'm all for, like, let's make the bad school systems better. Who's against that, right? But at the end of the day, we've mostly failed at doing that, and we need to look to other ideas. So the Internet is this fantastic breakthrough. So many people have learned so much through the Internet. We need to make the Internet better. Uh, The filters need to be of higher quality. You don't want the Internet to make stupid people stupider. That's a very real risk right now. It definitely makes smart people smarter. Uh, It's a very complicated, jury-rigged, bits and pieces, 20 different complex things all at once. Maybe no one of them sounds very impressive, but surely we can make people like way smarter and spot talent better. Rigorous testing in, in general, I'm a fan of, and East Asia does this pretty well. I don't think we should directly copy them in America, but teaching to the test, I don't think is a terrible idea just to get everyone through the tests and able to pass them would be a really big improvement on where we're at. If you were starting a, a fund that was just focused on investing in new city projects, what, what would your either investment thesis or request for startups be? Or where, where do you want to see people experimenting or innovating when thinking about new cities, governments, political systems, incentives, et cetera? Well, in general, I think there are too many proposals in the pure tech space. So still too many people like with some kind of app, and I'm not anti-app, Uh, but we've had plenty of apps. There's so many people with something in the blockchain space, so many people with something to just help us manipulate information a little bit better at some margin. And to think of a lot of the real problems as being quite physical, like traffic congestion or transit engineering, or still having some air pollution in the United States. Uh, I'd like to see more innovations, and I get they would be harder to scale, but I'd like to see more effort, more genius go in those directions. What would need for, uh, to be true for you to believe that we're no longer in the great stagnation and no longer the complacent class? Those are slightly different questions. So if driverless cars are truly up and running for 50% of the American population and you don't have to sit at the wheel, that day I will say the great stagnation is over. It's not the only way to get there, but that I think is the most likely big breakthrough that we will have next. Uh, I'm not sure how far away it is, but that would save a lot of lives, save a lot of commuting time, lead to some significant benefits. 
Uh, artificial intelligence becoming more potent is another way we might get out of the great stagnation. But actually, right now, a lot of AI is being used for surveillance, and it's actually quite worrying and maybe even slightly totalitarian. To get out of the complacent class, I would like to see more startups, a broader range of startups, more Americans moving across country at a higher rate the way they used to be doing it, more upward mobility from more segments of American society, dynamism not being so concentrated on the two coasts. wouldn't say there's a single metric, but if we made real forward progress on like a half to two-thirds of those, I would say we no longer have the complacent class. Some people sort of questioned the the connection between complacency and stability, how do you differentiate between the two, or, or where's the overlap? Well, people like stability, and that's only natural. You're talking to a tenured professor. Keep that in mind. <laughs> but there's stability for the purpose of doing what you want to do, which includes risk-taking, versus complacency. And complacency is when you use your stability to not have to really take much in the way of risk at all. And we see in the United States so many metrics that innovation actually is down, mobility actually is down. Uh, again, a complex series of causes, but I think one of them is simply we're personally, as a norm, less interested in being dynamic. And so we are, as a result, less dynamic. Again, not you and the people you know for the most part, but for the country as a whole. I'm convinced this is true. There's new data out showing people are having less sex than before. That has some minuses. It also has some big pluses. But I think it's also a sign of complacency. Actually, let's get into, I had a couple of relationship questions for you. You, you once told me not to pursue a business venture with my uh, then partner because I think one of the words you used was you might as well try to become you know, tennis doubles champions too. And, and the idea behind it was that the possibility of one being a successful couple or, or romantic partnership and then also being a successful business partnership is very low. Can, can you un unpack that a little bit? That sounds great. I don't recall uh, saying it, but I think like married couples, couples, they need some insulation from each other. They need time off. There's like the old saying, you know, till death, till we part for better or worse, but not always for lunch. And if you work together the whole time, my intuition is they'll drive each other crazy. I'm sure there are exceptions to that that people could cite, but it's just general advice. I think having some compartmentalized parts of your life is pretty useful. You need like a kind of refuge because hardly anyone can put up with another person like all day long every day. I remember also that in the same conversation, you were uh, dubious of the idea of sort of a thought leader in, in relationships or relationship advice as sort of a, you know, something we know a lot about. Unpack that. Well, when someone asks you for advice, whether about relationships or other matters, I think often they don't want advice. They want the feeling that they've exhausted their options and processed all of their alternatives to build their own confidence and do a thing that maybe they're not aware of yet, but somehow internally they've already decided. So when you give advice, you've got to realize they're probably not going to listen to you, even if what you say is awesome. You're a kind of placebo, uh, but you're a useful placebo. So it doesn't mean you should tell them lies in the concrete. But you also need to think about, like, how are you presenting the material? Should you be giving the person, like, confidence to follow their inner self or not? Uh, and think it through from a, a meta angle. Like, what is my advice doing here? And uh, consider it strategically. And don't just say what you think is the best thing they ought to do. Very Robin uh, Hansonian. 
Exactly. <laughs> With that said, uh, what would the Tyler Cowen advice for picking a romantic partner be? Well, ask yourself with any potential partner, like, what would my three best friends think about my pairing with this person? And that's not like the final verdict, but there are lots of mistakes in relationships. And so often you hear the person say, like, oh, my friends warned me, or my friends never would have thought this was a good idea. And just that simple question, not just relationships, different things you might do, you know, abusing substances. What would my three, four, five best friends think of this? I wouldn't say do it if you're a gang member, but it's a remarkably good guide. And if it's not like turning up all green lights, you know, really give it some further thought. I would start with that, like deferring and knowing when to defer to others, which we talked about a few minutes ago. To what extent should we be satisficers versus maximizers in, in, in relation? Is it less important who you pick and more important how you act you know, afterwards? Or Because one complaint in your complacent class is that we're all satisficers economically. But what are your thoughts there? I think in a relationship, you should neither be a maximizer nor a satisficer. If you're a maximizer, the other person thinks you're taking advantage of them. If you're a satisficer, the other person thinks uh, you're taking them for granted. You, you need, need to find, find like, like some, some different, different level where your focus is to grow with that person somehow and not to think of it in terms of economic terminology. So uh, this can be hard for economists to accept. They're so used to putting everything in an economic framework. We need to get out of it. Moving from relationships to, to friendships, what does the word friend mean to you? Sash, what do you look for in, in friends or what, what, what does that concept mean to you? Well, I think I'm like very unsophisticated with friendship. Just do I enjoy spending time with the person? Do I feel there's a mutual loyalty? Do we have things in common? And then you, you let it evolve. You don't try to like design, I'm going to be friends with this person. And if it evolves, great. So I would just say, if you approach friendship in a pretty superficial way, it can end up being pretty deep. If you come at it like trying to be all deep, I don't know, maybe it gets in your way. Yeah. You, you mentioned in conversations that we should try to be as weird as possible. Uh, can you unpack that idea? And what are some examples of, uh, of weirdness? Well, I was tongue in cheek when I said that. Someone asked me on Marginal Revolution, like, how is it that you have better conversations? You know, like, should you listen more? Should you talk more? What should you do? And my half-joking advice was most conversations are bad. You actually want them to end. And you want to match yourself to the good conversations. And by being weird, uh, like even weirder maybe than you actually are, you accelerate that matching process and you kind of force or induce the bad conversations to end more quickly. Again, I was half joking, uh, but I don't think it's a crazy idea either. One thing I think you've also said a long time ago, although I, I won't necessarily quote you, is that that just because someone commits something like infidelity in a relationship doesn't mean that they're less trustworthy as president or as CEO. Do you believe yeah, that? I, if so, what? I'd, I'd like, like to, to see, see the, the data, data and I don't, I don't want to name names. Uh, but there are some very well-known and successful CEOs whose marriage record is not in every way perfect. So I would not over-infer from one area to the other that I think people are, to some extent, compartmentalized. I mean, the thing I would worry about, say, in CEOs is simply men who never married at all past a certain age or never had a partner. I don't think the legal marriage is necessarily what matters, uh, but who haven't settled down say, by the age of 40 or maybe 38, I don't know. And there I would think there's some inability to like commit and get on a stable life path that's fairly general. 
So that would be a case where I think there is carryover. Recently, you were spending a lot of time thinking about Google and Facebook and how they were unjustly sort of criticized and that we should appreciate them much more than we do. Have your views changed at all since since writing about that? And and what would need to be true for you to think that they, in fact, deserve you know more more scrutiny than they're getting? Those companies have become underrated, in my view. So they give us great stuff for free. Uh, personally, I'm a bigger fan of Google than Facebook. I have a Facebook account. I don't use it. I'm at my quota of 5,000 friends. I can't take any more. I just find the page confusing. Uh, and I don't necessarily want to hear what everyone else has to say on it. But obviously, others value it a great deal. Google, I use dozens of times every day. And then there's Gmail, and they're helping develop driverless cars. They've made YouTube much better. Maybe something like Google Glass will end up making sense and working. So to me, they're a great, great company. I mean, I get the privacy concerns. I don't dismiss those. But practically speaking, the main threats to your privacy are the people you know. Your friends, acquaintances, maybe partners, not the big tech companies. And a lot of companies have information on you. The government has information on you. Credit bureaus, Office of Personnel Management, they get hacked. I guess I feel my information is marginally more secure with, you know, Google or Facebook or Amazon, even though that's not perfect. But if I think of actual dangers to my privacy, it is not those big companies in the Bay Area. It's the actual real physical world I live in. What would need to be true for you to want to buy Bitcoin? Well, for the most part, I believe in efficient markets, and Bitcoin is now traded with futures, and you can short it, and it's traded in Chicago. So that's probably an efficient price in the sense that a non-expert cannot outguess the current market price. I've become more optimistic about crypto and blockchain than I used to be, uh, but probably I'm never going to buy Bitcoin because like, why should I think I know better than the current market price? Maybe it's some efficient kind of diversification, uh, but it, it involves a certain amount of effort to deal with it and, and trade it. And I feel in my current life position, I'm pretty like protected and diversified anyway. So probably I'll never buy it, but I, I don't mean that as some kind of negative signal. Like, do I have to own it to be bullish on it? Well, yeah, no, but the price have just decreased because of, uh, no, I'm just kidding. What has led to the increase in, in belief in it? I've seen more closely the people working on smart contracts and the use of blockchain to solve transactions cost problems. I've seen in greater detail the potential there. I don't think we're succeeding at any of it yet. But if you focus more on crypto and blockchain as a means of governance and less as an alternative currency, it looks better. As an alternative currency, I don't think it has much of a future you know, outside of black markets where it will always be something. Uh, the real potential is as a substitute for governance and legal systems. Why not on the current side? Let's, you know, and Bitcoin has also risen up with resurgence of Austrian economics. And the, the basic idea that they present is that, you know, in sort of when we were in the gold standard and under sound money standard in sort of late 1800s, we had sort of a golden era. And then in the 1900s, when we moved to unsound money or, or money backed by government instead of by markets, we were able to finance wars uh, that hid the real cost to its citizens uh, via inflation. And that uh, another belief they have is that government can't really do anything to stabilize macroeconomic fluctuations. In fact, they're the cause of these fluctuations or, or the boom in business cycle. Uh, but just that's a, that a return to sound money in general, if not a replacement, but a corollary in the same way that we've gold can 
you know, help people transfer money or help people, especially in countries like Venezuela, or, you know, re- retain the value of their money, not be inflated away. What are your responses to both on the, the latter point of the currency side and also on the Austrian economics side? Uh, there's so many different issues in there. I don't know that I can pack them all, but let me take one or two. I mean, right now we have sound money. The rate of price inflation has not been seriously above 2% for a long, long time. That's pretty stable. It seems to work okay. You can spend money with no bid-ask spread whatsoever. Clearance takes longer than it ought to, like cross banks. It can take three to five days. Uh, That's not necessary. I hope blockchain will help us get that down in terms of time. It's already shorter in Europe, like it could be shorter. But keep in mind, blockchain and crypto, they're competing not just against the status quo, but they're competing against all the rest of fintech in different ways that we will improve the status quo. I think it's obvious government can do some things to stabilize recessions, just like stop banks from failing and stop nominal purchasing power from plummeting because nominal wages are somewhat rigid. That said, does government sometimes create boom and bust cycles? Of course it does. It can be like too loosey-goosey with credit, and then you get asset price bubbles, and then they collapse. So we should be more careful on that. Do people running the world's major central banks know that? Yes. Do they take great care to try to avoid it? Yes. Do they like always get it right? No. But I think we actually have pretty good regimes with central banks and really all of the world's serious countries, even a country like Mexico, which a few decades ago was considered a kind of joke for macro policy. Their central bank is awesomely good. They have smart people. They're trained at the best schools in the world. They work really hard trying to make the best decisions. It's one of the big advances in the world is how much better central banks have become. Right. Moving uh, to economists more generally, what subjects are economists overconfident and their opinions should largely be ignored? And conversely, what subjects are economics opinions greatly undervalued? Well, when you say opinions ignored, it depends whose other opinions you're going to take in their stead. I think it's perfectly fair to say economists have this relatively high status in the public policy world. And at the margin, we should listen more to historians and sociologists and some political scientists. I would agree with that. And we're like paid way more than they are. We're much more likely to say have newspaper columns or whatever. And there's no good reason for that. That's a kind of institutional failure. But that said, there's not some like systematic source of knowledge that does better than the economists. So you don't want like, you know, the people on Main Street voting directly on all government decisions. So I would say like on virtually everything, we should still listen to economists more than we do in fact, even though like within the sphere of expertise, non-economists should have higher relative status compared to economists. So right now, parts of the West are waging a war against experts. I find this worrying. Like traditionally, I've been somewhat of an expert skeptic compared to other people, but I've never taken that too far. I've always thought like, look, don't war too heavily against the experts. If you ever see a situation come along where other people really distrust the experts, that will scare the heck out of you and you will regret you ever wished for that. And I think we're getting a bit of that today in politics in America with Brexit, other places in the world. Right. And the sort of question with experts is in a world in which, you know, there are decreasing gatekeepers, gatekeeper institutions, who determines who the experts are, who, like who evaluates the evaluators of who the experts are? And does it just boil down to who the most people like? Well, the experts evaluate themselves, ultimately. I know that sounds weird and like it can't possibly work. 
But you could ask like about company boards of directors. Well, how do they get there? Uh, in an ultimate sense, you know, these systems are self-replicating. I find it remarkable, actually, how meritocratic a lot of them are. Like within economics, the people who are smartest at economics, they do tend to do much better. I think there are remarkably few, if any, like just lost geniuses. Is there like some person at a community college speaking the whole truth and not being listened to? I don't think so. I do think there's a problem. There are like different filters that discourage women or certain kinds of minorities. And those people like never get enough voices at the table. That to me is the main bias. And we're starting to work on that, but like way, way behind. Vast, immense progress is not imminent. But I think kind of within the voices we have, it's remarkably meritocratic. What's the most important economic result not widely operationalized by society yet? Congestion pricing. Almost all economists are for it. Rush hour pricing. Traffic is a huge problem. And when you look at what actually makes people miserable, it's these stressful commutes. And we know how to fix it. And there are places where we've done it and it's worked. Singapore, London, now Route 66, where I live outside of D.C. It works. We should do it. We should do it almost everywhere. Hardly anyone wants to do it. Boo-hoo. In a world where information is you know, accessible via stuff like Marshall Revolution, what is the role of, of the uh, academy university? Well, academics should write wonderful papers so I can blog about them and tell the larger world. So their role is to like work in the service of me and in essence be my underpaid servants because they, for whatever reason, didn't go out into the private sector. But I find like policy-relevant research, the word gets out. It ends up like in Wonk blog at the Washington Post or in the New York Times or on the most widely read blogs. Again, I think it's striking how the system works pretty well with, again, these caveats about the pipeline problems. Should academia try to incentivize there being more radically, you know, Tyler-shaped academics in the world? Uh, should it do that? If so, how should we want it to do that? Well, it already does that to some extent. So I've done very, very well being this weird Tyler. And most people, like, don't even have the option of doing it. Maybe there'll only be a small number of people doing things like that. But precisely because so many other people are so specialized, there'll always be this decent return for the people who can squeak through the cracks and become the well-known generalist. So I don't know that we need like some new subsidy. I'd like to see the world kind of be nicer to younger versions of me and more tolerant. I guess everyone feels that way about the thing they do. They want everyone else to be more supportive and tolerant of it. But I can wish for that too, right? Yep. So, so there's a lot of this intolerance period different points of view or what you need to do or you need to be published in these top three journals, whatever. I think we should just all be a lot more open, take internet publishing more seriously. Where do you see sort of the limits of economic logic and what other tools, value systems, frameworks do we need to bring in at that point, either as entrepreneurs, investors, citizens, etc.? Well, economics is great for telling you if the price goes up, people do less of something, right? That we know is true. But there's so many contexts where it's not really clear like what the price is. So one example I give is, say you decide to pay your daughter to do the dishes. You might think, well, you're paying her more, she'll do more of the dishes. Empirically, it doesn't always work out that way. She's thinking, well, if I earn more doing the dishes, like I'll be paid a smaller allowance, or it's really my parents trying to control me. Like what you see is the net price, what she sees is the net price is maybe very different. And then economics does pretty poorly. And ultimately, it's about like, what do people perceive as the real prices? And that's more like anthropology, sociology, the other social sciences, which are looser, 
but no less important. Right. What disciplines do you think we need to, uh, we should either dismiss or what's your sort of call for arms in terms of new disciplines or remixing intellectual lenses or methodological approaches? Well, most people should travel more. It's not called a discipline, but in a way it really could be or ought to be. It just opens your eyes to so much about the world and you see other cultures, other languages, you realize how contingent things are that you thought were necessary. So one great thing about anthropologists is with a few exceptions, like almost all of them travel a lot and they study other cultures. That should have higher status. And at the margin, we should all be more like anthropologists. And you can even just like do it on your vacation. Don't just take a cruise ship, take a real vacation, go somewhere, interact, look around, be curious. That's what I'd like to see more of. And what if I say, hey, I don't need to do that because I'm just going to do that all in virtual reality. Why am I wrong? Well, we don't have virtual reality yet. We don't know how good it will be. Uh, at some point, you might be right. But like even 5G is not going to do it for us. So uh, for the next 30, 40 years, at least, I think we're going to have to travel and uh, hope everyone can learn to enjoy it. What do you take? We start the Polodeck, uh, you, you know, know maybe, maybe someday. someday. But even then, there's something odd about face-to-face interaction. I don't know what it is. Is it like the smell? Is it what you see in your peripheral vision? Is it some primeval sense that you've been in the same room with the person? Uh, but it's very hard to substitute for that. And people who work on video conferencing, you know, will tell you the same. One of your interests I found curious is your interest in Curb Your Enthusiasm by Larry David. What do you take from that? Or what do you, what do you, how do you sort of assess what, why that draws you so? It's the funniest TV show I've ever seen. It's the return to the tradition of 18th century comedy of manners. It's about the absurdity of life. It's about what a wonderful and strange city Los Angeles is. It's about the entertainment business. It's about self-deception, human motivation, how people really enjoy their friends, how they lie to each other. There's so much social science in there, and I think it's consistently funny, and the episodes are produced with some kind of conviction. I think at least three quarters of them are, are really good or insightful in some manner. I've seen every one of them, some of them multiple times. I'm a big fan of the show. It's better than Seinfeld. It's like Seinfeld was a warm-up for that. You know, there's a sort of criticism out there of South Park that is just sort of utterly nihilistic in, ma- in making fun of everything. And I you know, wonder if that can also apply to Seinfeld or, or Larry David how, how, or Kirby Enthusiasm. How would you respond to that? Well, both South Park and Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, I think of them as actually quite moralistic. They're making fun of things, but typically with a moral lesson, and you're preached something about good and evil, even though there's a cynicism on the surface so that it seems kind of cool. Uh, But I view them as barriers to moral relativism. And selfish behavior sometimes is portrayed in such a brutal light that it is a moral self-education to watch those programs. And South Park, it's like a vision... Like, what, what, what America really should be. And it's showing how the real America falls short. And I think it's quite actually naive and idealistic. Not cynical at all. Huh. Naive in that it's too black and white? Or? Yes, there's a sense of, well, there are all these characters and they seem like fools. But actually, the, the show portrays America as this very positive thing that these fools are building this wonderful society. And these loudmouth kids make fun of things, but they're going to grow up to be those kinds of fools in a way of their own. And that's quite clear from South Park itself. 
So to me, it's almost like oddly too patriotic, I would say. I know that's an, an odd reading of it, but... Uh, I, I want to play a game where I say a person, and I want you to tell me uh, a sort of difference of opinion or, or fundamental assumption that, that you guys have that's different in terms of how you how you approach the world. And if you, you, I know you don't like to pass, but if no one nothing comes to mind, feel free to pass, because I, I have a few of these. I will try. Peter Thiel. I think Peter is more pessimistic than I am. Uh, Peter, of course, is some kind of Christian. I wouldn't presume to be able to tell you what kind. So there's a kind of standard against which sin is measured and the world is seen as fallen. And I wouldn't even say I, I disagree with Peter on those issues. I just think I'm more agnostic and uh, more optimistic than Peter is overall. And kind of the spectrum of kind of thought of libertarian, conservative, I'm maybe a bit more to the libertarian side, and he's a bit more, I think, to the conservative pessimist side. I don't mean to speak for Peter. That's just like my personal impression. Of course. What is your thought on his um, his statement that people take Trump literally when they should be taking him seriously? Do you take that statement literally? Or how do you, how do you sort of view that statement? Or do you agree with that? I'm not sure what he meant by that. You know, Alex Tabarrok tweeted something, I think, yesterday where he said, like, Trump is bad in unprecedented new ways. True. But Trump is not unprecedentedly bad. And then he cited, like, six other terrible things other presidents had done. And I think that's a good perspective. Uh, I'm not sure what Peter meant. But I think, in general, sentences with the word Trump in them tend to be low-quality sentences. Peter was trying to revise that in a positive, smarter way. I would be pretty sure of that. How about Larry Summers? Larry Summers, I think, grew up at a time when a belief in like America's great generation stuck in his mind. And the idea that there's a kind of liberal democratic party technocratic consensus of experts who can fix things, he has more faith in that than I do. And uh, I think, again, w when I talk to Larry, I feel more like Peter Thiel, that there's the sense of the fallen and these inevitable imperfections. And I think he's a bit too optimistic about politics and also policy. But I would say of like people from the Democratic Party side of the debate, he's the one whose arguments make the most sense to me. So I don't view myself as vastly far from him. Paul Krugman. I just in the last three months did two different dialogues with Paul Krugman. One is online, the other is coming online. I think he really does see the world in these good and evil terms. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys, and you need to do everything possible to support the good guys and speak out against the bad guys. For him, uh, the bad guys are the Republicans. And a lot of his particular criticisms uh, I agree with, but I think he's gotten too wrapped up in this good versus evil take and like playing to value and dismiss. And he said like recently, uh, who is the fellow, uh, the Indian guy who was sent to jail for violating campaign finance laws. Paul Krugman said, like, he's the leading number one conservative intellectual. And that just seemed to me, like, so clearly wrong, just as, like, a statement of fact. So I think he's not, like, working hard enough to understand the best arguments of his opponents. Would you say that Dave Remnick also uh, falls into that? Like, to believes too much in good versus evil? Well, I haven't seen Dave Remnick since I went to high school with him. He was two years ahead of me, and I barely knew him then. Uh, I love his book, Lenin's Tomb. I think New Yorker is a great institution. 
But like Dave Remnick, the person, uh, I, I couldn't give you comment one way or the other. I have no negative memories of him from high school. I knew his brother Richard much better. Richard was on, had a great sense of humor. I really enjoyed Richard. Wow. How about Nassim Taleb? I met Nassim twice, and he is a truly charming gentleman, and you could describe him as a kind of pussycat. He is not like his Twitter persona, and Nassim and I have become friends. I hope to see him more. Uh, I don't really have a sense of like what he is really like, but he's fun to spend time with and super smart. And I would just say, if you've seen Nassim on Twitter, uh, there are many more sides to Nassim than that. But in terms of uh, point of view, uh, he's so strongly influenced by having grown up in the Lebanese Civil War. And he has a kind of fear of extreme risk and a kind of pessimism and sense of fragility. And, you know, I grew up in suburban New Jersey with, like, the Remnicks. So whether his perspective or mine, like it's the correct one, or whether you can even say there is a correct one, but certainly mine is very different. I take a fair degree of stability for granted in a way he does not. That would be the biggest difference. All thinkers are regional thinkers. Another, another account. Exactly. But he, he more than most. Right. Ezra Klein. Ezra and I are good friends. Uh, we talk a lot. We agree on a surprising number of things. I think it's, he has again a kind of faith in a democratic party technocratic elite where i think there's something deeper going on in politics about symbolic value and expressive value and i view progressivism as a kind of failed enterprise that is by its very nature violating what human beings really are and that it can't work and that it will backfire and that it's no accident that obama was super smart led to donald trump I don't think he sees it that way, and I do. Anne Rand. I saw her speak once. I think I was maybe 16 years old. Uh, the talk was really boring. When I was young, I probably 14 years old, I read her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which I loved. It was also an inspiration for stubborn attachments. The idea that capitalist production was this fundamental source of good in the world and that it enabled creativity and self-expression she expressed very eloquently, had a big impression on me. But that said, as a philosopher, I think she's wrong about most things. I disagree completely with her critique of altruism. When she stamps her foot and says things like existence exists, I don't know what that means. And she thinks everyone else like denies that existence exists, or they're whim worshippers, or they're all like evil, or they're, they're cretins. Her whole basic attitude, I think, is, is way, way off. And she, she can be a kind of dangerous toxin in that way. But what's good in her is tremendous, and it's become undervalued. Thomas Piketty. I've never met him. I read his main book, which I thought was very well done, but it seems the data don't hold up. And the main force driving the inequality of wealth really is land value, as has been shown by Matt Ronley. Uh, so my main difference with, with Piketty is simply that I disagree with him. He's French, I'm American. I suspect if I knew him and what he was like, there'd be a lot of kind of standard stereotypical differences that he's a sort of French socialist and I'm an American small libertarian. You know, fill in the boxes from that. Let it rip. Right. Is your belief that people should become less regional by traveling more, basically? Uh, yes. Like how regional is Piketty? I couldn't tell you. I think his book's a very French book. I would say that's a good thing overall. But like, can he think in the frameworks of other regions? Excellent question. I just don't know. Uh, David Brooks. Uh, David and I are good friends. 
when he and I meet, we always have what are, to me, some of my best conversations. Uh, I think I'm more free market than David. I think David is more of a communitarian, and he sees markets and communities as being in some kind of tension. I tend to see markets and communities as supporting each other more. But again, when I talk with David about things, he and I agree about way more things than we disagree. And I think just like our sense of where other people might go wrong, he and I agree like to an extraordinary uh, extent. Derek Parfit. Derek Parfit was one of the great 20th century philosophers. Uh, reading Reasons and Persons in 1984, a book I picked up by accident, by the way, in Harvard Bookstore, changed my life, changed my sense of like how a book could or should be written. I think Parfit was one of the world's great kind of monoglot thinkers. There was one kind of rational ethics philosophy coming from Henry Sidgwick that he perfected and devoted his entire life to in almost a monastic sort of way. And he was like more philosophical of a philosopher than anyone I've ever met. He was only in limited ways a generalist, and he didn't seem that interested in a lot of empirical questions. And I'm way more a generalist and trying to travel everywhere. He went to Venice and St. Petersburg many, many times, was into his photography, which I actually find quite beautiful and artistically important. But like he did his thing and that was it. And he perfected it. And he was astonishing to me. It's just like very, very sad that he's no longer walking on this earth. Steven Pinker. Uh, Steven, I don't really know. I did interview him once. I agree with him mostly about the world getting better, but I think he severely underrates the notion that wars are becoming more destructive as time passes. So it's true, they're more rare. But, you know, you get World War I, that's terrible. World War II is worse. Well, what will World War III be like? We don't know. But it stops me from being as optimistic as Pinker is. And I worry a bit he's become, become besotted with this kind of mood, like optimism. And there's a lot of data in his book. But he seems to be a bit attached to the mood. On questions linguistic, I'm not sure I really have a formal opinion. I've read a lot of his work. I've enjoyed it. You know, I love his early work on verbs. I think that's fascinating. That's actually my favorite Steven Pinker. And if you're a Pinker fan, I would say go back and read Pinker on verbs. Hardly anyone ever does these days. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I met Kareem uh, once, but I watched him play basketball his entire career. He was one of my favorite players. His incredible work ethic always impressed me, even in hopeless situations. The number of different skills he developed, his coordination, the way he used dance skills to make the skyhook work, and how few other centers have developed an effective skyhook, his overall versatility, his interest in the arts, that he's a figure really out of the Harlem Renaissance, how many books he's read, how many books he's written, how deeply he understands African-American history, his interest in Sherlock Holmes and Persian carpets and so many things. He's a polymath. He's an amazing guy. He's like a famous celebrity. I tend to think like you can't really get to know a famous celebrity. But I think from what I know, we all should admire him. Cass Sunstein. I gave a talk on behalf of Cass in Bergen, Norway this year because Cass won the Holberg Prize. And I had a whole hour talk on what I thought was important and valuable in Cass. And I was uh, very happy and honored to have had the chance and go and give that talk. He is one of today's great polymaths. He's read everything, and he knows everything about everything else, like Cass and Richard Posner. Uh, they're the two titans there, and he's smart on everything. He's to the left of me, 
But I think on so many issues, he's surprisingly eclectic and will surprise you. And uh, I always love seeing him and talking to him about stuff. Most of all, Bob Dylan. Julia Gala. I've become friends with Julia. I think at first, actually, she didn't like me because I said something snarky about the rationality community. I said, in some ways, it's becoming partly like a religion. And I think she took offense at that. Julia is super smart and super open. And just like as a center for ideas, kind of running what you would, you know, metaphorically call a salon, I think she's a very important figure in the Bay Area. My main difference with Julia is that I think travel is very important and she's very much a travel skeptic. And I would love to be able to convert her on that. Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs was at Harvard when I was at Harvard. I've run into him a few times in the meantime. He's a very smart economist. He's one of the smartest economists. He's done so much in politics. I think people have forgotten that. One of his greatest contributions is his arguments that geographical endowments are very important for economic development. That has been neglected. His role in turning around Poland and the Polish reforms set off basically 25 years of 4% growth. He also had a positive contribution to the economy of Bolivia. I know he's controversial and he behaves in a lot of ways people don't like, but I think he's been a huge plus for the world. And he goes around acting like a certain kind of celebrity in a way that kind of the mood of that is very alien to me. And like I can see why people would be put off, but I would say look under the surface, look at the substance. There's really been some pretty amazing stuff done there. Nate Silver. I don't know Nate very well. Uh, I loved his election forecasting, and of course, he's had some huge successes. Uh, I loved his sports writing, and best of all was, were his burrito brackets, like ranking Mexican food in different parts of America by quality. Just that he's kept at it and like developed this into a kind of business and had his own website and turned it into something managerial and larger than just Nate Silver. I think that's all to be admired. Like how he's, he's different, different from me, I don't really know. I haven't spent enough time with him. Russ Roberts. Russ was my colleague for many years. I think Russ is to the free market side of me. Certainly like relative to most economists, I would be on the free market side of them. But Russ is on the free market side of me. He's disagreed with me about economic stagnation. He thinks progress has been much higher than the numbers indicate. He and I disagree on that. Uh, Russ is a strong believer in God, and he is very active in his synagogue, and I am somewhere between agnostic and atheist. So to me, like his temperament in some ways, it's very different from mine, but he and I are good friends. We've done a bunch of things socially. Our families know each other. I always look forward to seeing him. He's been like a pioneer with the podcast. He has incredible reach. He's an amazing spark plug, and uh, I was really the person who, like, pushed for GMU to hire Russ. I was crushed when he left. I'm delighted and honored. Like I could have been the person that like pushed for us to hire him. And I will always be a huge undying fan. We, we talked a little bit about your colleagues, Brian and, and Robin earlier, but perhaps your, your colleague, Alex Tabrock. Alex, I have known more years than I care to count. He just knows so much economics and he is always like working so hard on improving myself, himself. I think Alex is like more scientistic than I am. And he thinks of economics more as a way of kind of improving the world sort of through schemes like option pricing or congestion pricing or using blockchain to create new markets. I see value in all of that. But I think Alex, 
is like 5x more optimistic about the value there than I am. But Alex and I agree on all kinds of things. He grew up in Canada. How does that make him different from me? You know, it, it must somehow, but he's fairly Americanized by now. But I think Alex is uh, maybe like more sympathetic, say, to some progressive like moods and ideas maybe than I would be if I had to say, even if he doesn't agree with their economics. Like there is some clear difference in there. Alex at times will say he's for open borders. I don't think it's workable. You push Alex on that, he'll say, well, it's just an ideal to work towards. But still, I wouldn't put it that way. I would just say, I'd love to have more immigration, but we do need to place limits so people will feel in control and thus ultimately let in more foreigners. Glenn Weil? Uh, I don't know Glenn very well. I met him once, I don't know, like 10 years ago. I'm guessing could have been more. And I certainly read his book and I've read most or maybe all of his major articles. I think in terms of IQ, he's one of the very, very, very smartest economists, young economists, but economists, period. Uh, that said, I'm not convinced by his ideas. I think they're perfecting economic mechanisms, but not looking closely enough at the value-based sociological and anthropological factors that limit the applicability of economics. So I hope Glenn is right. I think of him as someone who likes to kind of think up schemes for doing things in a new or better way. I more am a political realist, I think, than Glenn is. And I'd love to spend more time uh, talking with him. He lives far from me. And he has opinions on a lot of other things. Like he uses the word plutocratic. I don't think of our government as like controlled by the rich people. I guess I give greater scope to the influence of the median voter. Glenn has all kinds of views on Israel where I'm like probably just agnostic, but I certainly wouldn't say I share his views. How about Mark Andreessen? Mark is just one of the smartest people ever. Like he invented the browser. This is like super well known, but people these days just don't understand what a breakthrough that was. It made the internet work. Like Mark made the internet work. Everyone should just like bow down and, and reveal him. And he's so widely read and so quick and just this incredible like judge of talent and character and always bubbly and full of energy and full steam ahead. And, you know, what he's done in, in so many areas, all the other companies he's helped birth is uh, just incredible. Mark is himself like a shy guy, I think. And a lot of the world, you know, probably doesn't know him, uh, but I'm a huge fan. He's way more optimistic than I am if you're looking for differences. Yeah. How about Jonathan Haidt? Jonathan, I did a podcast with, so you know you can consult that. I think he is a great hero in terms of free, speaking up for freedom of speech in the academy, and he is someone who has really re-examined his own views and changed them in her like heroic, courageous ways. I guess I have some doubts, like what heterodox academy means as a movement, a kind of institutionalized movement of dissent or non-orthodoxy, it has a hard time not becoming its own orthodoxy. But he's reached so many people, he's improved academic life, like big blow uh, for freedom of speech. Like Jonathan's whole worldview, I'm not sure I know what it is, but just the fact that he's like coming from a left democratic tradition, and I am not, there's going to be a lot of obvious differences. And my best guess is if you filled in the boxes there, you'd get a lot of mileage out of that. Even though I think he and I have probably converged on a large number of issues, but the direction you come from still matters to your attitude. 
that segues in, into uh, a tribute to your podcast, which is so great listeners should listen to. The last game of Overrated, Underrated. Overrated, Underrated, The Intellectual Dark Web. Well, there's so much of it I don't know. So I love Eric Weinstein, who I think is like one of the, the smartest humans on the planet. And I love talking with him and hearing ideas. But someone like Ben Shapiro, I've never read. I've never listened to. I mean, people have very strong opinions about him. It's like on my list to get to, but I can't say. So most of IDW, I just don't know. I know there's at least one component of it I love. In general, the idea of there being alternate sources of authority, information, opinion, you know, I think is great. I suspect if I dug into it, there'd be a lot I would find highly objectionable. But it's like way bigger than I am, I would say. Do you differ with Eric on anything worth mentioning? Well, Eric is a Bernie Sanders, or was a Bernie Sanders support, and that's a pretty big difference. So I think I differ with Eric on a lot of things, but I like how he thinks, and there's something about the pattern of how he thinks that resonates with me. Always like trying to push deeper on things and reconcile opposites, and that he and I have in common. What about Jordan Peterson? I've spent a few hours with Jordan Peterson. It's very hard to like break through Jordan Peterson and get to the real Jordan Peterson. Uh, when you do, that is really interesting. Like everyone either overrates or underrates him. There's no one who rates him properly. Uh, I think since most people don't see the real Jordan Peterson, they're probably underrating him. But like if someone thought he was overrated, I would get why they thought that. Like I see where that comes from. Uh, but he's a super smart guy, incredibly widely read. And his ability to like dig deep on either the macro or micro side on so many issues is astonishing. And there's really just a few people in the world who can do that, and he's one of them. Overrated, underrated, I feel like it's one step removed from IDW, but Richard Dawkins. Well, I read The Selfish Gene when that sort of stuff was still new. Like a lot of people, it had a real influence on me. I'm not sure how well the book has held up. Maybe it's like overly naive Darwinism, but that's like a foggy memory speaking. His whole like crusade for atheism, I strongly disagree with. I don't believe in God myself, but it seems to me like the new atheists have become one of the worst religions, and there's a dogmatism there. We should be open to religion and study it and look for the positive, which is significant. So I'm not sure how he's rated, but his new atheism, I would just say I basically don't like. His initial work on biology, I liked at the time, but haven't read for ages. He's a super important figure, highly influential. I've never met him. Are you in favor of a... Uh, or open to a godless religion in the future that promotes economic growth? Well, it's called stubborn attachments, I guess, but I don't want to call it godless. It leaves room for God, and I think that's very important. Right. Underrated, overrated, modern therapy, besides just uh, someone to listen to you? I suppose I'm skeptical, but I've never really read the literature. So some people will insist that like cognitive behavioral therapy works, and they'll cite studies with data. I haven't read those papers with any care. I've pawed through some of them. I tend to worry, like, what's a placebo effect? Like, is it better than your clergyman or rabbi? Is it better than your friends? Is it better than just being religious? I don't know. I'm, I'm reluctant to speak where I'm not that well informed. But I would just say I lean toward the suspicious side. And the last question, again, a tribute to the Tyler Cohen, uh, Conversation with Tyler podcast. When you were doing your podcast, You've talked about, uh, to me, how it's uh, you're really trying to inspire other people to learn. So what is your production function for, for the podcast, and, and how can others be inspired to learn through it? 
my podcast conversations with Tyler, I pick the people I want to talk to and really don't think like, oh, how many downloads will this get? I don't even check that. And just have the conversations I want to have and try to learn from them. And I figure that will resonate with like some set of listeners and readers. They're also in transcript form. And just do that. I'm not in any way paid. We don't sell ads. There's like no nothing. There's no trick way of like earning money in the background or nothing. And it's been my like best, most most important learning experience of the last few years. And I want to keep on doing it for as long as I can. That's a perfect way to wrap. And if this hasn't been obvious, this has been the conversation I want to have with Tyler, another one you'd like to have. Tyler, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Eric. And uh, it's been a pleasure for me too. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 